Again, welcome, and to those of you who are joining us online, uh, we extend a special welcome to you. We are always thrilled to have you be a part of uh, Worship with Freedom each week online like that. Uh, For those of you who are in the region, we hope that uh, soon you'll be able to reemerge and be back here on campus with us, but we're so grateful to have people around the country and around the world who can tune in this way. We are uh, currently in a series that uh, is entitled Choices That Define Us, and over the course of the next two or three weeks, we're going to be talking about some real fundamental choices that are so much a part of our DNA. And I want to tell you, sort of like last week, you're going to have to engage your mind as well as your heart to track with what we're talking about today. But I really want to encourage you to let your heart press into what we're going to look at today. Because of all the things that we can talk about, I don't know of much of anything that has more potential to impact every relationship that you're in right now to greatly improve the relationship. And I can't think of anything that we're going to look at that would have greater potential to help the church reemerge as the leading moving force in the culture today than what we're going to talk about. We all witnessed in the year 2020 a variety of things that we wish we had never had to live through or had to see. But if you had to sum up part of what we watched last year... And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic when I say this, but we really got front row seats to see the decline of Western civilization last year. It's not that it all happened last year. We just finally got to see on clear display the reality that's been taking place in recent years and decades. And we truly are seeing the decline of Western civilization. We saw it manifest in a variety of different ways. We saw it in the United States in riots and looting that were taking place in seemingly every major city from coast to coast. And no matter what anyone said or did, you couldn't make it stop. All of this anger and unrest, we've seen it manifest in just a multitude of expressions of fear, distrust, and outright paranoia that, that we feel like Any and everybody out there is formulating some kind of conspiracy and they're out to get us. It's either the billionaires or it's the government or it's the scientists or it's the doctors. But but we believe that that they're out to get us. And so we're conspiring as to how we're going to keep that from happening. I'll tell you another manifestation of, of this unhealthiness. There hasn't been a time in your life... When guns and ammunition have sold at the rate that they did in 2020, are you aware of that? I mean, it's crazy. If you talk with anybody who's in that industry, their eyes are still bulging to to have witnessed what they did in the last year. It's like we are surrounded by an unseen army. They are armed to the teeth, and they have enough ammo to get them through the apocalypse. People who are scared to death... We've witnessed political vitriol that is unparalleled. I mean, at a level now, it's not just politicians who are going at each other. It's just ordinary people in the streets and in the pews of churches who no longer just have differing positions. They think that their hated enemies are right there in the room with them. It was manifest on January 6th with the storming of the United States Capitol. We are watching the decline of Western civilization. And if there's one thing that is at the root of it as much as anything else, it is what we're going to talk about today. 
it is that we have replaced honor as the standard and the defining mark of our relationships. We have replaced honor with contempt. And that will consistently destroy marriages, families, friendships, churches, and the effectiveness of governments. And that's what we've been witnessing happen. We begin today with a simple passage from Romans 12.10. This is one of those that's easy to blow by when you're reading the scriptures, and yet it is one of the most practical and needed words for us today. Paul said this, Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Take delight in honoring each other. We're going to press into this idea of honor today. Honor is the thing that makes a marriage sweet or the absence of it will cause it to be cold and become a dead relationship, a roommate kind of relationship. Without honor, families, marriages, governments, and churches go into decline and ultimately become dysfunctional. We see things like divorce and division where we don't have honor in relationships. When the Lord was first defining how relationships are going to work and how life is supposed to work, the Ten Commandments were the first real clear body of instruction for just the basics of how we've got to do life. As he's mapping those things out, one of the first Ten Commandments that he gave, Paul references in Ephesians 6 when he says the command says, Honor, everybody say that word together, honor your father and mother. This is the first command that has a promise with it. And here's the promise. It's a twofold promise. Then everything will be well with you, and you will have a long life on the earth. Can you get a better deal than that? I mean, seriously, when you look at the promises of Scripture and, and the conditions that go with it, okay, here's the double promise. You want a long life, and you want everything to go well in your life. That is a pretty honking big set of promises, isn't it? And he says, well, here's the beginning point of that. You want a good life. You want a full rich, long life. It starts with this. It starts with honor, and you let it begin with the, the starting point of your relationships. And this, I mean, when everything started, it was family. Before there was government, before there was church, the first institution was the family. God added two additional institutions, the family and uh, beyond the family, and that is the government and the church. And honor has to be the defining mark in each of those. And he says, so to begin with, you learn to honor the first two key people in your life, mom and dad. And this becomes the defining mark in every relationship that you have. Honor. Honor is what it's all about. Honor is the necessary ingredient in all great relationships. A confession is supposed to be good for the soul. Can I make an awful confession to you this morning? This is probably bordering on too much information. But Thursday night, I had not gotten nearly enough sleep for whatever reason just just couldn't sleep so friday night rolled around and man i really needed a good night's rest i had forgotten to do something that i'm supposed to do every week jackie manages the church's facebook she put posts that stuff that you see every day but i'm responsible for writing the little sermon piece for every saturday and i forgot to write it this week she's always far more conscientious than i am so she reminded me two or three times friday night because that's supposed to be ready to go out Saturday morning. You haven't given me your piece for Facebook. You haven't given me your piece for Facebook. The last thing she told me when we climbed into bed, you haven't given me your piece for Facebook. At 2.45 in the morning, when nature woke me up to make my nightly trek to the bathroom, I come back in to get in the bed, 
out of the darkness, I hear, you still haven't given me your piece from Facebook. I kid you not. Now, I'm on my little trip to the bathroom. I'm shielding my eyes from the nightlight. And the whole time, I'm telling myself, because my problem when I can't sleep at night is my mind just gets in gear. So I'm literally rehearsing, don't think about anything, don't think about anything. I'm going, don't think about it, just don't let your mind go anywhere. And I get back in the bed, and I'm thinking, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be able to get back to sleep when I hear you haven't given me your piece for Facebook yet. And I immediately start going, don't think about Facebook. Don't think about Facebook. Don't think about So I get in bed, and 30 minutes later, I'm still thinking about the piece that I've got to write for Facebook. So being a thoughtful, considerate husband, I finally roll over and give a big huff to make a silent statement of, you did this to me. And I reach over and grab my glasses and grab my phone to start searching for what I'm going to put on Facebook And Jackie goes, what are you doing? And I lovingly responded, I could choke you out right now. I'm writing a piece for Facebook. So I search and search, and about 15 minutes later, I get at least the image that I'm going to use. And I text it to her, and of course, I've got her awake too at this point. And she's got her phone out. And a few minutes later, I hear her laughing in the dark. And I hear her laugh again, I'm like... Because I'm still not laughing. I'm mad that I'm missing another night's sleep. And I said, what are you laughing at? And she said, well, I'm laughing at the fact that the last thing that you just said to me was, I'm about ready to choke you out, and you just sent me a Facebook message that says, the most important ingredient in every relationship is honor. (laughs) So there you go. Every time I'm going to preach something on Sunday, I get taken to the woodshed the week before on that very issue. It doesn't always come naturally for us. So there's my confession for the day. Honor is the standard. Contempt is the other side of that coin. Contempt is a word that we don't use a lot. So let's, let's first of all get clear on what these two things are. Contempt is feeling that someone is beneath consideration or deserving of scorn. Now, we get the, that's really the two different versions of it. We get the deserving of scorn. That's the version of contempt that we're most familiar with where I can't stand you. If you were on fire, I wouldn't pour water on you to put you out. We all know what that feels like. That's the person that we just despised. I hold you in contempt. And we are pretty aware of the people that we feel hot contempt toward. But here's the really tricky, deadly part is all of those people that we hold cool contempt toward. They're not the ones that we're red hot angry at. They are the ones that we feel are just beneath our consideration. I don't have to worry about you. I don't even think about you. You know, one of my favorite expressions, and we say it often at our house, it is intended as a way to to just make a declaration of healthy boundaries because I tend to be one of those people. I'm a fixer and I'll I'll cross boundaries and think, you know, Stone, let me help you with that. Let me help you fix your your problem. And one of the things the Lord's been teaching me over the years is having healthy boundaries. And so the line that we'll frequently say is, not my monkey, not my circus. In other words, I'm not responsible for that, so I don't need to meddle in that. And that can be a healthy recognition. The problem is when we take the mindset of not my monkey, not my circus, and we apply it to people in situations that we really should be concerned about, that we should feel burdened for. That's a version of contempt. And that's the really cancerous one that spreads so freely that we just don't care about, not just individuals around us, but about entire groups of people that Jesus cares deeply about. And we just feel like they are completely 
off the radar for us. We just don't give a rip. That is contempt. Honor, on the other hand, is recognizing the value that someone possesses and esteeming that person rightly. It is assigning the proper value to them. The New Testament word for honor is tamao. Everybody say that with me. Tamao. Not tamato, but tamao. And it means literally to assign value or to prize. How many of you have ever watched on PBS Antique Roadshow? How many of you ever watched that show? It's actually kind of cool. And I used to think it had to be like the nerdiest old person show ever on television. But it, it can be a little bit addictive. If you've never watched the show, you know, they, they go around the country to different cities and they set up where people bring in all of these antique items. And the fun of the show is that they're, people will bring in things that they have no earthly idea what it's worth. It's just old stuff. And they don't know if it's junk or if it has great value. And, you know, sometimes they'll bring it to the experts and they'll look at it and they'll be like, well, you know, it's cool, it's nice, but it's uh, worth probably $30. You know, it's, it's just, it's not anything valuable. But that's not the real fun. The fun is when the next person comes up and they're like, this probably isn't worth anything, but it's been in our attic forever and I think it's been passed down for several generations. Is it, is it any good? And they'll look at it and say, oh, this is, this is so old, this is so rare. I would say one hundred and fifty dollars to $200,000 is the value of this. And you can just see their eyes become saucers. Because in one moment of time, what had just been old junk collecting dust in their attic has in an instant become the most valuable and prized possession that they have. Because for the first time ever in their lives, they can assign the proper proper value to that item and now they will never see it the same again they'll never treat it the same again friend that's a picture of what honor is someone that you've never paid attention to before that you've never cared about before when for the first time in your life you look at them and you see someone who really matters someone that you care about that your heart is tender toward and that you're burdened for you see them as a prized possession of god and someone that you are, are truly so glad that you can count as a part of your life, that's honor. Honor and contempt. And we have to choose which one we're going to show to every person in our lives. Well, why is this such a big deal? Why, why are we so fired up about the issue of honor? I'll tell you why. Because honor is the culture of heaven. And it is the operating system of the kingdom of God. I'm going to say that again because I want that to sink in for us. Honor is instituted by God, and for Jesus, it is absolutely the culture of, of heaven and of everything in the kingdom of God. When Jesus came to earth, we tend to think that he was able to draw crowds because he was a great showman, because he could do all these spiritual magic tricks. He could do what no one else could do. He could cast out demons. He could raise the dead. He could heal the sick. And so it was all the, it was all the power show. That attracted people, and certainly that was attractive. But that isn't what had the staying power. The thing that had the staying power that created a movement that all of the anger and the violence of the Roman Empire could not put down. It continued to spread like a wildfire driven by the wind. The one thing that made that happen was what Jesus ushered in. And it was this radical new culture of honor that honored the people that all of humanity had despised and said they are worthless we don't want anything to do with them and jesus said they're the ones i'm crazy about they are the ones i'll focus my energy and attention on they are the ones i'll build a kingdom with 
We're given multiple examples of this in Scripture. We'll just look at a couple briefly. Mark chapter 2 says, Later, Levi, who also is Matthew, invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests. Paul's right there. Don't, don't run past that. Who is Matthew? Who is Levi? He's now one of Jesus' most newly recruited disciples. He's Jesus' inner circle. He's one of the twelve. But this guy was a notorious, notorious guy among the Jewish community. They despised him because he was a tax collector. He collaborated with the Romans, and he was a crook. All, all tax collectors essentially were crooks. They profited by overcharging everyone on their taxes, and they pocketed that, and that's how they all became wealthy while all of their fellow Jews were living in poverty and starving. He was hated, and Jesus said, yeah, I pick him. It's guys like him that I'll build the kingdom on. Jesus and his disciples were invited to his home as dinner guests. So not only is he willing to talk with him, he makes him a a close friend and confidant, and now he's going to his house to eat dinner, and he's there along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. You look at these passages and realize that the, the language that's used makes it clear. It's not just generically sinful people, but yes, there are prostitutes at, at most of these gatherings. I mean, the, the most despised people in the community, tax collectors, prostitutes, crooks, that's who Jesus is associating with. And it says there were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? There's contempt embodied right there. The religious crowd, they're looking at this up-and-coming rabbi, and they cannot understand. He is going to dinner and parties with the most disreputable, lowest reputation crowd you could ever hang out with. Why would he spend his time with this scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Friends, that is a culture of honor. Jesus said, the people who think they've got it all wired together, they don't need a doctor. In fact, you can't help them. The people that I've come for are the ones that you don't want anything to do with. A rather interesting thing happened about 15 months ago. I've hesitated to ever share this story uh, very publicly. December, not this past December, but a year before, I had gone out to the street, I don't know, to, to get the mail or to collect the garbage cans. And someone that I had never met before pulled up in front of the house right as I was getting to the end of the driveway. He stopped and rolled down his window and introduced himself and said, Hey, uh, my wife and I recently moved to your neighborhood. We hadn't met you yet. And we've been wanting to, uh, to reach out to you and your wife because we're going to have a Christmas party in a week. And we want to invite the two of you to come and be a part of our Christmas party. It is going to be a big bash, and we really want you to be there. And he's selling the Christmas party. And I've got mixed feelings as he's saying this because, like, there's a part of me that, that really laments the fact that people just don't do this very well anymore. We're terrible at reaching out to our neighbors, and 
So I just thought, man, it's such an admirable thing that he'll do that. And yet there's an introvert part to me that's like, oh, am I going to know anybody there? Would that be really awkward if we go? And so anyway, I go back in. He said, you know, we really do want you to come. If it's okay, I'll drop a, an invitation in your mailbox to tell you the details about it. But hope you'll come. And I said, thanks so much for that. So I go in and I tell Jackie about it. And over the next few days, we're back and forth about whether or not we're going to go to the Christmas party. And I'm saying, I really think we should go. We, we should meet our neighbors. This is something we ought to do. And as it turns out, the Saturday that it falls on happened to be the day that, I don't know, Morgan or Jacob, one of them was coming home from school. And that was that afternoon's when they were going to be arriving in town. And it was just going to be an awkward time. About the time they'd get there, we'd be heading out to this party. So we just we declined the invitation and we didn't go to the party. And I'm like, oh, I feel bad. I guess we should have gone, but we didn't. And sort of write it off. Until... A few days later, a neighbor who's a close friend of Jackie's calls her up and said, hey, did y'all get an invitation to the neighborhood Christmas party? And Jackie said, yeah, and we weren't able to go. She said, we were. And let me tell you, it was quite the party. It was not like any party we've ever been to before. And she began to describe what happened when they got there. They're, they're you know, church-going Christian folks, very conservative And she said, we knew something was up when we got there. First of all, chauffeurs were dropping people off at the house, and that is not where we live. You know, they they were like Lamborghinis and Ferraris are who are coming. We don't live in a Lamborghini Ferrari neighborhood. And so something seemed odd there. And she said, from the time we were, you know, met at the door and brought in, and we looked around and realized, uh oh, something is off because. No one else is dressed like we're dressed. We're just dressed like people going to a normal party. And we'll just say people were scantily clad inside. And as they went on in, there was a lot going on. Go-go dancers were performing. There were, I, I won't even describe everything that they described that was happening, but there was a lot happening. And what she ended up describing and then finally summarizing was it was a different kind of party than what we had thought. She said, what we actually got into without realizing it is apparently we were invited to a swingers party. And we just didn't know it. When I heard that, my heart kind of stopped. And my first thought was, holy smoke, that was a close call. Can you imagine if the preacher and his wife had shown up at the swingers Christmas party? And I mean, I'm just like wanting to wipe the sweat from my brow going, we were that close, baby, do you realize? I was trying to talk you into going to the swingers party. I'm like, I'm wanting to find the invitation again. I'm like, there has to be a code on there. There has to be like a code word that lets you know something has to say swinger. I mean, how did everybody else know except us and our neighbors? That was my first thought. But now I want to be honest with you. The more I have thought about it, the more the Lord has used that to actually convict me. That my number one concern was for my reputation. What might you or someone in the community think of me if I showed up at a party where sinful people were gathered talking about sinful things? And I want to tell you, that's the kind of party that Jesus showed up at again and again. 
That's why the religious crowd was so offended at Jesus. Because he didn't just tolerate people who were way outside of church culture. He immersed himself with them and said, I want to be in close connection to you. I want to be in relationship with you. Now, we're probably all getting really uncomfortable with this thought, and I can't prove the point one way or the other, but I'll tell you, I finally landed at the point of believing that if Jesus had been in my shoes, I think he probably would have gone to the party. First of all, I think he would have had more sense than me and figured out what it was beforehand. I missed something. I think he would have realized what was up, and I think he probably would have gone anyway. And I'm not trying to give commentary on what you should or shouldn't do, and you could argue both sides. But I do know this. I know Jesus' first concern would not have been for his reputation. His first concern would have been for the people who had actually cared enough to say, hey, would you come into our house? We'd love to get to know you. We'd love for you to come to our party. Now, there's a part of me that's still self-defensive. I'm like, why do you want to get to know me? Why are you con- why, what are you thinking about me and my wife? Why? I don't think Jesus would feel threatened by those things. I think Jesus is so concerned for people who aren't comfortable in church, and people that we in church are so much more comfortable despising and telling funny stories about rather than being burdened for. And I confess to you, I've lived too much of my life that way. I don't want those people to be the punchlines to my jokes. I want them to be my friends and my neighbors. And it's not because I want to be a part of the swinger culture or whatever culture. It's because I, I want to live in an expression of Christian faith that doesn't wait for people to get their act together and their lives cleaned up before they can have a relationship with me. I've been religious all of my life. I've been in church for nine months longer than I've been alive. And it has taught me to live in such a way that it becomes a challenge to learn how to, to connect and relate well to people who didn't grow up in church culture, and that's a gigantic disadvantage. Jesus was the master of loving, reaching out to, and really intimately connecting with the people who felt like there was no place for them in the world of faith and religion. That's a picture of honor. Tragically, contempt, which is the other side of that coin, has become the most toxic force that is eroding God's people today and our effectiveness in the world. There's a social scientist by the name of John Goderman. You may have heard of him. He's also a relationship expert, and he's kind of a marriage whisperer. He's a guru who has quite a reputation for being able to listen to just a small snippet, I mean just minutes of, of an exchange between a husband and wife, and with up to 94% accuracy saying whether or not this marriage is going to make it or if it's going to end in divorce. It's a pretty interesting skill set. He says that his ability to discern this is, rooting in, is rooted in just observing the biggest warning signs in relationships, and that is that they're all signs of contempt, things like sarcasm, sarcasm sneering, and hostile humor. He says, quote, disagreement is normal, but dismissiveness is toxic. And when he sees that in a relationship, it's the red flag that consistently says this relationship won't make it because there's contempt. There's a complete sense of dismissiveness that says, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I don't care what you feel anymore. By the way, our culture has 
has so gotten good at expressing this attitude of dismissiveness, we've learned to sum it up in one word that trumps everything else. You know what that word is for us today? Whatever. I didn't even have to tell you. Whatever. Whatever. You're upset. Say what you want to say. Whatever. That means I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you think. I don't care about your opinion. When the church, when we as followers of Jesus have a whatever attitude, the world can see it. They don't see and feel the love of Jesus in that at all. Luke 15 gives us one more snapshot of the the honor culture that Jesus ushered in. When it says, one day when many tax collectors and other outcasts came to listen to Jesus... And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, once again, these are the the most respected religious leaders of the day. They started grumbling. This man welcomes outcasts and even eats with them. You realize this wasn't a one-time thing. He's not just tolerating these people. He's engaging. He's enjoying these people in his life. Contempt is causing us to dismiss entire segments of our society. And it is destroying the social fabric of our lives. It's ruining marriages. And you realize how benign our expressions of contempt are, don't you? And do you realize that if Jackie's talking to me and I'm giving more of my attention to a telephone screen or a computer screen than I am to her, that's contempt. When I am dismissing, devaluing the other person I'm showing contempt. Marriages will fail for lack of of honor. And governments don't work anymore. We're watching our government become as dysfunctional as it's been in ages, maybe in its entire history. And it's rooted in this central issue of, of choosing contempt over honor. In our lifetimes, government functioned at a much better level than what it does now. I mean, even as recently as the 80s, it wasn't that conservatives and liberals thought more alike in past generations. They related differently. You talk to the politicians who are old enough who can remember doing their jobs back in the 80s and beforehand, and they'll describe a very different culture where when they are doing their jobs, when the House is in session, when the Senate's in their chamber, and they're debating weighty issues, man, they will clash. They will go head-to-head and toe-to-toe, and they will disagree, and there will be fiery rhetoric. But at the end of the day, you know what happens? They go to dinner. They share time together. They shake hands. They share stories, and they laugh together. Democrats and Republicans together, they can disagree, and yet they still have honor as the core of their relationships, and they have meaningful relationships. And today you talk to anyone who's a part of the the Washington establishment, and they will tell you that doesn't exist at all. The two sides hate each other. They wouldn't consider going to dinner together. There is no ongoing relationship other than one of hate. When you take honor out of the equation and you replace it with contempt, government doesn't work and churches cease to have any real value or influence in the community because the community will see through it in a heartbeat. They will recognize a religious club that meets to avoid and insulate itself from those dirty people out there. When we let this cancerous thing of contempt work its way into our lives, what will happen is our contempt will cause us to 
to devalue the people around us. We will silently impose a standard on everyone around us. And, and those standards can take a lot of different forms. It can be based on religion or, or ethics or finances. It, it can be about you know, behavior, a, a lot of different things. It can be about politics. But we, we create this standard and then we evaluate everybody else by how well they live up to our standard. And everybody who doesn't live up to that we then devalue them. We place them in, a, in an, a category of contempt where I don't want anything to do with you. And so we'll emotionally withdraw from them. And what we do is we withdraw to circles of sameness. People who think like we do. Because that's the safe place where we can agree with what's wrong with all of those people who don't live up to our standard. Senator Ben Sass in his book, Them, wrote about this very trend and and I just want to read one little short excerpt from his book he says our isolation has deprived us of healthy tribes with whom we share values and goals and ways of life that uplift us and so we fall into anti-tribes defined by what we are against rather than what we're for it is a sorry substitute for belonging but it's better than nothing we might not have much in the way of community but at least we aren't as ludicrous as those sanctimonious liberals on MSNBC or as absurd as those blowhard conservatives on Fox. There's something comforting in joining people of a similar mindset, the we, so that we can denounce them. He's writing very poignantly describing the world that we live in today. And churches can be just as guilty of this as anyone. Contempt is clear in our politics, but it is so bled into our churches, and it doesn't work for us. Because as New Covenant people, we've been given new hearts that are designed to operate on principles of love and grace and acceptance. And when we start letting these, these kinds of goofy filters define how we look at everyone around us, Nothing works anymore. No follower of Jesus can ever walk in joy or power or anointing when they're carrying around contempt for other human beings that Jesus loves. With the net result that contempt for us individually and for us as a church will rob us of power and blessing. It consistently does that. Contempt is going to close off. <clears throat> Paul said in Ephesians, excuse me, in First uh, Thessalonians five, nineteen and following, do not quench the spirit. In the closing of this little letter, he gives all these little short, just bullet statements that are so powerful and important. Here's one of them. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Why is that a big deal? Because when you quench the Holy Spirit, you are cutting off the flow of God's power, God's anointing to bring healing, deliverance, restoration. All of the stuff in the supernatural, all the powerful works of God are cut off. Supernatural discernment, wisdom from God that we desperately need. You're cutting that off when we quench the Holy Spirit. So clearly, do not quench the Holy Spirit. That's important. How do we avoid that? Do not treat prophecies with what? Do not treat prophecies with contempt. There's that word. But test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. It's easy to read through this and think that all of these are unrelated thoughts. They are not. Paul is a very sharp, bright guy that's writing this. He says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Let me point out one of the ways you quench the Holy Spirit. When you treat prophecies with contempt, you will do that. 
What does one have to do with the other? Prophetic words are a, a direct outflow of the, of the working of the Holy Spirit, where there is the anointing from God, where there is just the overwhelming move of the Spirit of God. There are prophetic words frequently. God speaks through his people to his people. And it's not just the preacher that's doing that. The body is equipped with people who are going to declare prophetic words. And we are so changed by that. We are so empowered by that. It gives us insight for change that's needed in our lives. But it gives us insight for how we should live our lives. I mean, it's so relevant, the prophetic words from God. But what people tend to do in the, when they experience the, the prophetic realm is that we'll treat that with contempt. You know what that looks like? That's when God gives Butch a prophetic word and Butch speaks it to me. And for a moment I go, hmm, what if that's really from God? And then I start thinking about Butch. And I'm like, I know Butch. I mean, why would God tell Butch something that he didn't tell me? I mean, what's Butch got on me? He's no more spiritual than I am. Who does Butch think he is to try and tell me that as if he's the voice of God in my life? Who do you think you are, Butch? Keep it to yourself, buddy. That is treating prophecies and your friend with contempt. And yet we'll do that. We will hear a word that is from the heart of God by the Holy Spirit through somebody and we'll write them off. We've treated a word from God with contempt and in so doing we quench the Holy Spirit. Now I love that Paul is so practical that he goes on to say, now don't treat prophecies with contempt but do test them all. You hold on to what's good and reject every kind of evil. Why did he have to say the rest of that? Well, if you've ever been in a church, if you've ever been in community where you welcome the work of the Holy Spirit and where you receive prophetic words, you learn this really fast. There's as much noise and garbage as there is stuff from the Holy Spirit. The healthiest people that are in tune with the Holy Spirit are going to be sharing along with the most unhealthy people who don't have any clue what God is saying, and they'll pretend to have words from the Holy Spirit. So, Paul says, now, I'm not telling you to accept everything and treat it as if it's from God. You test it all and see, does it line up with the the counsel of Scripture and does it line up with the character of God? So you test it, and the things that are garbage, you just throw that away, spit out the bones, but you hold on to everything else. But you see, honor and contempt are the key piece in this. That's the pivot point. I have to, to look at you. And no matter how long your track record is as a follower of Jesus, I have to recognize God can speak to you just as clearly as he can speak to me. And it actually pleases him to work through different people to speak truth into our lives. He loves doing it that way. One of the things that's a stumbling block for us in Western culture and the American church is we're all about independence. It's all about me and Jesus and my quiet time. And we fail to lose the sense of God works in community. Yes, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but he doesn't have any only children. None of us get to be the only child of God. We are all invited to live in the family of God. And in the family of God, he works through the family to speak into our lives. Well, I have to honor you. You have to honor me to hear the voice of God speaking through one another. Contempt says, I don't have to listen to you. Honor, on the other hand, gives us access to the anointing of God in and through others. I won't go back and reread this passage, but if you were here two weeks ago, you remember when we looked at what happened with Jesus in the the little double story of Jesus 
healing the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years and just the touching of his robe, and she's healed. And then he goes and heals Jairus, or actually raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, the little 12-year-old girl. How just all this power is coming out from Jesus. He's going into communities where he heals every sick person and frees everyone who has a demonic spirit, everybody. And then he goes in Mark 6 back to Nazareth, back to his own hometown for the first time since he started doing ministry publicly. And it's like, wow, what's going to happen there? And on the Sabbath, he gets up and he speaks in the synagogue, and the people are amazed. I mean, you can't help but be amazed at the wisdom and the authority of Jesus. But they're offended. It says they, they begin to think about it, and they begin to recall that they know Jesus. They've been watching him for 30 years, and they haven't been that impressed with him. And they're like, we know his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And, I mean, he's just the carpenter. I mean, what, who does he think he is to get up and talk like this? I mean, we've heard all the stories of the miraculous powers but we watched him for 30 years and we never saw him perform a miracle i don't believe it and in response to all of that what did jesus say a prophet is not without what is not without honor except in his own hometown and because of their lack of faith he could not perform miracles there they didn't honor jesus so the anointing was cut off. The spirit was quenched, and they didn't get to experience the power of God in Nazareth. The people who had the most ready access to it, because they didn't show honor, they showed contempt. They were like, we know him. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus got contempt instead of honor, and the people got essentially nothing in return. Because honor gives us access to anointing. Honor opens up the work of God. Contempt closes off the work of God. We're all exhausted by contempt in our culture. Whether you realize it or not, we're just exhausted by it. If you don't realize how exhausted you are, go home and spend 20 to 30 minutes reading every Facebook post that comes up on your feed. You'll be tired. You'll be 30 minutes and you'll be tired of contempt because it is just... Is there any place this manifests more clearly than in our social media. So what are we supposed to do? What do we do for this cancer of contempt that seems to be taking over? The only cure for it is to be a people who demonstrate honor again and again. It is one of the most beautiful virtues in the world today, but it's one of the most neglected. We must, as individuals, but as a church, reinvent, rediscover a culture of honor. Now, we, we love to imagine in churches that we have a culture of honor, and in a sense we do. We do express honor in the church. And I'm not trying to be critical. I just think we need to be honest about where things are so that we can get to a better place. Do you recognize how much, even in church culture, where we have a culture of honor, honor always flows uphill. And that's the only direction that it goes. Think about where we show honor in churches. We honor people who are in leadership. We honor people who are talented. We honor people who are smart. We honor people who have specific gifts. Tony is a gifted musician and worship leader. He will get honor wherever he goes. That's the culture we live in. Honor flows uphill. He's a talented guy. He gets honor. I get honor because I'm a senior pastor. I get honor because I'm comfortable standing on a platform in front of lights and talking to people. And we live in a culture that naturally will honor that. If you aren't a bumbling idiot when you stand up to talk to a crowd. If people will actually follow what you're saying, they'll give honor to that. 
I'm no more valuable than anybody else. Tony isn't more valuable than anybody else. We have a selective, a selectively honoring culture in churches today. It flows uphill. If you're good looking or you're talented or you're in a position of authority, we will honor you. What I want us to see clearly is that is not what Jesus instituted. It's not wrong to give honor. In fact, Paul said to those, to, to the elders, and particularly the elders who are in a position of teaching, you should give double honor. It's appropriate that you, you give honor to people who are in places of spiritual authority. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But what Jesus instituted so clearly is, I honor those that no one wants to honor. People who have leprosy that can't even live in the community, and if you come near them, they're supposed to scream unclean and scramble to get away from you. And he says, those are the people I go and put my arms around and welcome. The people who are notorious scoundrels, the women who sleep with any man, those are my friends. I want to have dinner with those folks. I want to be at a party with them. That's honor that doesn't just go uphill. It goes in every direction. That's the kind of honor culture that we're called back to. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, from this time on, we don't think of anyone as the world thinks of people. That needs to become like one of our motto kinds of verses, one of our mantras around here. We don't see anybody the way the world sees them because we're called to a different standard. We've got a different lens on when we look at people. We recognize the value, the contribution, the intrinsic importance of everyone around us. Jesus showed this to everyone that he came in contact with. His filter of value created a community like the world had truly never seen before. And it's why Rome couldn't conquer it. Intimidation and force cannot suppress this. A place where people who feel so utterly rejected and unloved, where they find true love and acceptance and where they can see it in the eyes of the other person. You really see me and you still love me. Gary Smalley and John Trent in, um, in their book, Love's a Decision, which is an old book. But by the way, if you're wanting to, to find something to bring some freshness in your romantic relationship, go back and read that book. But one of the things that Smalley and Trent spell out in there, they talk about the layers that are necessary to have a healthy relationship. And the first layer that they point to is honor. And as they talk about honor, they talk about the awe principle. That, that there is this thing that happens before any words are spoken that is expressed through your eyes. It is that thing that you can read. Nobody has to teach you how to do it. Everyone can read it, that you can look at another person's eyes and read when they're going, Oh, man, it's Forrest. It's my good friend. I'm so glad to see Forrest. I hadn't seen you in so long. Oh, man, it's like a drink of cool water to be with a friend that you haven't been with in a long time. And just be, it, you don't have to say anything yet. You can see it in the eyes, the, oh, yeah. But the opposite is just as easily communicated, isn't it? The look that says, I don't want to even be here. don't want to have this conversation. Jesus created a community around that ah principle. So let's close today by making this practical. If we are going to work toward personally and as a community of faith, living with this, this as the value that we want to honor everyone, not just tolerate them, honor them, 
to make them a valued part of, of our lives. What does that look like? Well, we need to view others through an honor filter, and here are four specific things that you can do to, to try and put this into practice. The first one is this. Remember that everyone has a backstory. Rather than rushing to judgment, pause to, to take into account what the other person has been through to bring them to this moment in time. Author Stephen Covey, many of you have read his stuff, uh, he describes at one point in his life in the city getting on the train, public transportation, and witnessing a scene that captured the attention of everyone on that car of the train. There's a father and his two sons, and the sons are just acting out horribly. They're being so loud and obnoxious that he said everyone stops what they're doing. You know, they're pulling out their earbuds and, and looking just kind of in horror at, at these kids who are acting up so badly. And Stephen Covey said... At some point, he finally did what people don't normally ever do in the city, and he spoke to the father to say, I mean, do you see what your boys are doing? Don't you think you need to do something to reel in their behavior? And I'll just read a a little excerpt of what followed. He says, The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think. And I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey said that in that moment, everything changed for him. He said, my paradigm shifted. Suddenly I saw things differently. And because I saw differently, I thought differently. I felt differently. And I behaved differently. My irritations vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or behavior. My heart was filled with a man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died? Oh, I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed in an instant. Because I paused to hear the man's backstory. Everybody has a backstory. They didn't just suddenly arrive at this moment acting the way that they're acting. Jackie and I have a loved one in our, our lives that, that we both care for, our hearts are tender toward, that we're both burdened for. And, and I'll just say, if you only got a snapshot of her life today or any time in the last many years, it's not someone that you probably are naturally attracted to. It's not someone in most of my life I would have naturally been attracted to. Because as we would judge decisions, we judge a lot of bad decisions along the way here abandoned church, abandoned God, abandoned any concept of faith, abandoned what had been her family in the past to embrace a lesbian lifestyle and to you know, just do a, a lot of things that are easy for us to judge and say, what a, what a bad person for, for doing these things. And, and to date, you know, as of now, this year, still at that place that when you post something online about faith in God and, and anything spiritual in nature... She's apt to just blow it up on Facebook. One of those people that just is you know, angry at the concept of God and church and faith. The kind of stuff that at times just gets under your skin and you just want to right back. But we don't because we know the backstory. I can't think of five people I've ever known personally who have lived through the levels of abuse and neglect that she's been through. She and her little brother from the time that they were like four, five, and six years old, being left at home for days at a time, where day and night 
they'd be left alone to fend for themselves, to protect themselves, to feed themselves for multiple days in a row. The levels of abuse that she survived. And I just think if knowing the things that we know, I can't begin to imagine where I would be today if I had lived through what she's lived through. If we can pause to consider the backstory, everybody has a backstory. And it's easier to love someone if you can appreciate the pain that they have lived through to get where they are today. Honor acknowledges the pain that people have endured. Secondly, never forget that we're all broken. Every time we get together, we are the fellowship of the broken. Now, some of us have had more opportunities and relationships and experiences that have allowed for more healing to take place. So our brokenness may not be as acute or as visible as other people's. But all of us are broken. And when we can recognize the depth of our brokenness and remember how embarrassing it would be if our worst stories and you know shameful moments were exposed what that would feel like and look like. It's a lot easier to love and embrace people around us who are broken. We all are broken. I'll tell you who the scariest people on the planet are and who the scariest people in the church are to me is the people who have no concept of their own brokenness. I'll be the first to admit, I grew up a Pharisee in training. I was in church every time the doors were open and mostly good stuff came out of that, but there is a downside to it and the downside is... I was a Pharisee's Pharisee, and I would judge you for everything that you could be judged for. And I judged all the easy stuff that there is to judge. If you were a man and you had long hair or you had tattoos or you had earrings or you know, any of the things, if you, if you drank, if you smoked, if you this, if you that, I would judge you 17 ways to Sunday. And it took a lot of years for the Lord to bring me to a place of recognizing my own brokenness. I'm going to tell you, when I got in touch with the brokenness and the cesspool that was my own soul, it became so much easier to love and accept or accept and to, to value and appreciate the broken people who were around me and actually to feel so much more at home with people who realize their brokenness and so much more uncomfortable with good church Pharisees. You know the only group that Jesus didn't get along with while he was on earth? Religious people who thought they had it together. It's the only people he was ever harsh with. And you go back and reread the Gospels, it is breathtaking how many times he is cutting a Pharisee off at the knees. I mean, the only people, he, he loved everybody else to death, but they drove him bonkers. And I want to tell you, it was not meek and mild, gentle Jesus with them. He was as sharp as a, as a buzzsaw with them. He just didn't have room for that attitude. We're all broken. Thirdly, Consider and honor the unique calling and gifts of others. It's sort of interesting to observe how much of a, of a crisis of self-esteem we seem to have in the church a lot of times. Do you ever notice this? Like we, we are just eaten up with, I mean I guess it's an expression of our brokenness, but we are just eaten up with an insecurity about Oh, there's nothing special about me. I don't have any gifts. I don't know what I could do. I don't know how God could use somebody like me. And so then it becomes a big deal to build us up and to affirm us that, you know, 
we do matter and that we've got gifts and that we're made by God. So passages like Psalm 139, 14, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Ephesians 2, 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And, and don't get me wrong. I've taught these passages plenty of times. It is an important truth. You need to see your value. You need to know you're loved and gifted by God. There are things that he designed you to do that he wants to do uniquely through you. Yes, we need to get all of that. But here's the piece we miss in that. It's not just about me. Yes, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I have been given gifts by God for works that he designed me to do. But so has everybody else. They are fearfully and wonderfully made. And they have gifts that are different from mine. And they aren't wired like me. They think differently from me. And that's why some people do things so differently from me. And I would just judge them for that. Until I came to appreciate that God is the one who makes all of these differences. And if I can appreciate that God wires people differently because he loves diversity and the church does not need a bunch of marks, it would be a boring church. When I can begin to appreciate that everybody around me has these unique gifts that come from God. Consider the unique callings and gifts that are different from mine. And then finally, honor others' potential and future contributions in God's plan. Honor sees what someone can become and not just what they've been. The next verse after what we just read a moment ago from 2 Corinthians 5, 16, verse 17 says, When anyone is in Christ, it's a whole new world. The old things are gone. Suddenly everything is new. Honor has the capacity to look at someone who still is acting out. They're still in a bad place. And to recognize, man, when Jesus gets hold of that heart, oh, the future is not going to be defined by the past. Can you imagine when Jesus has his way in that life, what a profound impact it's going to have on them, but through them to impact others that I would never reach. Honor recognizes the future potential of others. And in doing these things, honor paves the road to healing and restoration. When we can be this kind of church that looks at the community and no matter how broken or down and out people are, we just see someone loved by God that would just be a treasure for us to have as a brother or sister. And when we don't wait for them to clean up their act or get to a better place, but we just get down with them, that becomes the channel for healing and restoration to take place. What would happen if all of us began to live this way? I want to close with just a little excerpt from Philip Yancey's book, Rumors of Another World, What on Earth Are We Missing? He's one of the best writers of our time. He said this, Jesus was the first world leader to inaugurate a kingdom with a heroic role for losers. He spoke to an audience raised on stories of wealthy patriarchs, strong kings, and victorious heroes. He's talking about the community of faith steeped in the stories of the Old Testament. Much to their surprise, Jesus honored instead people who have little value in the visible world. The poor and the meek, the persecuted and those who mourn, social rejects, the hungry and thirsty. His stories consistently featured the wrong people as heroes. The prodigal, not the responsible son. The good Samaritan, not the good Jew. Lazarus, not the rich man. The tax collector, not the Pharisee. As Charles Spurgeon expressed it, 
Jesus' glory was that he laid aside his glory, and the glory of the church is when she lays aside her respectability and her dignity and counts it to be her glory to gather together the outcasts. Can you just, with your mind's eye, begin to picture this irresistible thing that Jesus started, this community like no other, that the church was never designed to be this gathering of people who essentially have pretty much got their lives together and can get together and celebrate that life is going so well for us. And we just get together and sing songs and listen to some good teaching and celebrate how good life is for us. That that was not the ultimate expression of the community that he was creating. That he was calling together broken people who were outcasts from every corner of society. And in their brokenness, unleashing power to heal, forgive, and transform lives. And together, these broken people become a community like no other that can't be stopped by anyone or anything. Boy, there's unlimited potential in that. It's all about grace and love and acceptance that is rooted in the person of Jesus. He accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us how we were. He changes us to look more and more like him. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer? Jesus, you are so good to us. In spite of our brokenness, you pour out your goodness into us. We thank you for, for the experience of that here today. Oh, how we need more and more of you and your work in our lives. God, we confess to you that contempt has seeped into our hearts and minds in so many ways. People that we don't care about. And we just confess that as sin. We ask you to change us. Teach us to love who and what you love. Why don't you just right now from your heart just invite God to show you, whether it be an individual person or a group of people, for whom contempt would describe where your heart has been toward them. God, just show me where I haven't shown honor. Show me who you value that I haven't valued. Ask him to show you what to do with that. How do I begin to make that right? What adjustment can I make to show love? Jesus, thank you for valuing us when we just didn't have much to offer. Thank you for how you love us. If today you need to open your heart to the love of God and experience Christ working in your life, whether that's putting your faith in him for the first time or coming back to him, why don't you just express that to him? Jesus, I need you in my life. I want to feel your love and your presence. I want to experience your forgiveness. He's paid for your sins at the cross of Calvary. Would you just receive his acceptance and forgiveness today by faith? Oh, Lord Jesus, would you pour out your spirit on us today? We cannot muster what we need to to be right with you or to love the world or even our families like we should. But by the work of your spirit, we can be the people that you've made us to be. So come, Holy Spirit, have your way in our lives. Make of us the family of faith that you would have us to be. Please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.